Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John 17, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Please be seated. Thank you, Charlotte. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Christ Community. We're really glad you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors on our staff. And before we continue uh, looking at this passage, I'd love to pause and pray to the one who spoke these words, who wrote these words, um, and inspired them for us to, to read uh, right now. So do that with me, if you would bow with me as I pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have sent Jesus and that you have given us this um, recording of his prayer for the world, for us, for his disciples. And we pray uh, that the Holy Spirit, who um, is interceding for us even now, and we're comforted by the fact that your scriptures promise that Jesus is praying for us right now. He's interceding for us, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. So as we come to you in prayer, we know that you are already uh, praying for us this morning. And we just ask that we would be transformed by your glory today, that we would see it, appreciate it in fresh ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, beauty has the power to move us like few other things. Um, and I think we've probably all had stories of when that has happened to us at some point where beauty moved you in a powerful way. And maybe you were at a national park, or maybe you were at the National Gallery looking at portraits or, or paintings of landscapes, uh, or maybe it was something uh, that just happened in your own, own home. Maybe it was the first time your child smiled at you. Or maybe you were just driving home from work one day, and for whatever reason, that sunset that afternoon just took your breath away with the Kodachrome colors spread across the sky. And those moments of beauty that captivate our hearts and minds, they leave sort of a residue of memory that just it stays with us, those moments of having been profoundly moved by beauty. And one of those for me was uh, during my first year of seminary in Chicago land area, and there was a, a, a town on the, on the kind of the north shore of Chicago called Highland Park, Illinois. And one of the things that Highland Park is known for is this thing called the Ravinia Music Festival. It's this big outdoor music venue, big lawns and beautiful space, and lots of different 
bands come and play there, uh, but during the summer they always have a series uh, with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And the great thing about that particular series is that if you are a student, which I was as a grad student, you have a student ID, you can go for free, which was really, that was, that was key. So we take the train, go to the Ravinia Festival, and uh, have some time there. Now, one of the things uh, that is known for is people will have these like epic picnic spreads. It's kind of like they can almost compete with one another who has the, like, the best picnic set up. Now, as first year grad students are, picnic spread was not um, super elaborate. And this is actually a picture of me simultaneously boring three women while losing my hair. Uh, I, did, I did a lot of that, uh, I think, in seminary. Um, until they're all like, yeah, Bill, will you please just stop talking? Um, but I enjoyed the, that uh, concert that evening. I think one of the, the pieces was uh, Moskorsky's um, Pictures at an Exhibition, kind of a vague memory of that. But that particular piece, the concert itself, I don't really remember much about it. I mean, it was fine. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra, I'm sure it was incredible music. But I don't remember a lot about the concert itself. But what stands out so vividly for me was actually the concert was over. By that time, it was dark. It was a full moon or almost a full moon. So it was a beautiful, kind of clear sky that night. The moon was uh, there streaming down. And the, as we were packing things up, I remember I was like folding up this blanket. And all of a sudden, I just heard this little string of music. And the, the orchestra was doing like a kind of a surprise encore, and it was Debussy's Claire de Lune. And if you know that piece, it just kind of, it's this beautiful, kind of haunting, just creates a sense of yearning. And I just remember kind of just being arrested in that moment, listening to that music, almost wishing it would never stop. But of course, it, it, always, it always does, right? Those moments of beauty, they always end. But when you're in the midst of them, it's like I could, everything seems right. This could just go on forever. And, and that's what we're talking about, beauty. Before we even have words for it, I think we've all felt it. We were designed for it, to, to know it when we see it and to be captivated and ultimately to be changed, to be transformed by it, that we don't leave the same person after we encounter genuine beauty. So I wonder where you have seen this kind of beauty. Maybe just even call one of the, maybe as I was sharing that story, that in your mind, that called to mind one of those moments for you, and just to think through that, to think about that for a moment. And, and why do I say all this this morning? Because here in John chapter 17, and I encourage you to grab one of those pew Bibles, or whether you like to pull it up in your phone, just I encourage you to come and look. We're going to spend a lot of time focusing really just on those first five verses of John chapter 17. Because Jesus is ending his conversation with his disciples. And we've been looking at this conversation that he's had with his disciples now for um, like several months now. Uh, but this is one night of conversation that Jesus had. So when we re-entered the Gospel of John, we've, most of this time has been in what's called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is teaching his disciples over this Passover meal right before he is about to be betrayed and then tried and eventually crucified all in the span of the next 24 hours. And this prayer that we have recorded for us in John chapter 17 is the last thing that he does, the last thing that he says to his disciples before this, this moment of his arrest and then trial come in, in John chapter 18, which we'll be looking at next week. And these aren't Jesus' final words in the Gospel of John, um, but they are those kind of final words that he speaks to his disciples before that moment of betrayal and arrest. And he prays to his father for glory. He says, Father, my hour has come to reveal my glory to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but glory is kind of an abstract idea for me. What does it mean to have glory? 
Uh, It's a a term that's actually used in the Bible quite a bit in both the Old and New Testament, trying to capture the idea of splendor or shininess or weightiness or awe when we encounter something so pure and so good and so wonderful that all we can do is bow down and worship. In other words, glory is a way of talking about beauty. Now, glory may be more than simply beauty, but it's certainly not less than that. Certainly not less than that. And Jesus prays to his Father that it's time to reveal my beauty. And this is what all of the gospel has been building toward because Jesus knows that only his beauty, only his glory can change us, that his glory, his beauty has to be revealed to us for us to ever truly understand who he is. And so at the heart of this final prayer in John's gospel from Jesus, this this moment before he's betrayed, He prays that we would behold Jesus' beauty. And the whole Gospel of John, again, has been building to this. So just look again at verses 1 through 5, because this is where we're really going to camp out this morning. There's so much in this prayer, but we're going to really focus on these first five verses. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And John is reminding us here, even with these words of Jesus, that revealing Jesus' beauty has been the purpose of the gospel from the beginning. In fact, you know, it's been over a year since we looked at this passage back in John chapter 1, but when we began in the gospel of John, this is, John puts this right up at the front. This is John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh. That's Jesus. Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But we've been waiting chapter after chapter in the Gospel of John for when is this moment of Jesus' glory going to be fully revealed? Maybe you even remember in John chapter 2, Jesus does his first sign, his first miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding. And when his mom, Mary, initially even asked him about this, his initial response to her is, my, my hour has not yet come to fully reveal my glory. That there's something that's going to happen in the future, and the, the hour for that hasn't yet come. But now the hour has arrived. You know, that was verse 1, he says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son. The hour has arrived. And it's a beauty, a glory that goes back, back even further than John chapter 1. It goes back to to Genesis chapter 1 and even before that because in verse 5 he says, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Reveal that glory. That there's a glory at that moment in history when Jesus speaks those words that had not ever been seen yet. And we were made to behold Jesus' beauty, his glory revealed. But what we discover in the gospel is that glory will be revealed in Jesus and in the way that we would not at all expect. Because Jesus wants us to behold his beauty, his glory. But when we do, we find that Jesus' 
beauty is shocking. Beholding Jesus' beauty shocks us. Because Jesus' glory, his beauty shocks us because it's revealed on the cross in his death. This is the hour that Jesus speaks about, the hour of his crucifixion. is the moment of his glory. His hour is the cross. Because at the turning point of human history, the climax of God's revelation of all beauty and glory hidden before the foundations of the world, his masterpiece, his magnum opus, his Mona Lisa, his Beethoven's fifth, is Jesus dying on a cross. Excruciating pain, torn flesh, blood, humiliation. That is how Jesus' glory is revealed, his beauty most fully, and it shocks us. And this is where Jesus goes right after he prays this prayer. He will be betrayed, condemned, flogged, and crucified. And what John wants to make clear is that the hour we've all been waiting for, the hour all of creation was made for, the hour that Jesus has come has arrived to reveal his glory and beauty. And we couldn't understand Jesus until that moment of the cross. And it's not just that the cross is sort of something that Jesus has to go through in order to get to the place of glory. But that the cross is actually the place where his glory is revealed. And no one expected it. Not the Jews, uh, certainly not the Greeks, or even us today. We don't expect that that's the place where Jesus' beauty, his glory is revealed. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about this. Uh, Listen to these verses. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Many Greeks missed out on who Jesus was. They saw it as utter foolishness. In fact, one of the earliest artistic depictions of Christianity and Jesus is, is one mocking him and mocking Christians. There's a, a piece of, of, this is one of the earliest pieces of, of kind of uh, art that depicts anything having to do with Christianity. And it's actually a Roman graffiti. And you can see that there's someone on a cross with the head of a donkey and then a person bowing down. And under the, the words that are scribbled on that says, Alex Menes worships his God. This mocking Christians who would worship, would worship a crucified human being as their God. It's like, how, how stupid can you get? It's ugly. It shocks us. And, and many of the Jews also misunderstood too. The, the whole thing was blasphemy to the highest order that God would never ever reveal himself in a human being, for one, much less a human who would die a cursed death on the tree. How can an all-powerful, fully good God allow this to happen to be done to himself? It just doesn't fit. And yet, as Paul writes, for those who are being saved, for those who are called, the cross becomes the power of God, the place where his glory and his beauty is on full display. So if you were to transport a Roman soldier from the first century, if you could have some kind of time machine, take a Roman soldier from the first century and drop him down in, in the National Museum of Art today, 
that soldier would be beside themselves that the image that they had perfected, crafted to shame and punish and terrify the known world into submission of their empire was now considered the most moving, captivating, beautiful picture of who God is that the world has ever known. Jesus transforms the cross from a place of ugly death into a picture of beautiful self-sacrifice that brings life. So how did this happen? How could it be? It's because Jesus prayed, Father, reveal my glory. Show my beauty to the world. And this beauty changed the world, and it can change you too. Because beholding Jesus' beauty makes us beautiful. Because it doesn't just shock us, it has the power to transform us. Uh, Beauty has this sort of wooing nature. It it draws us to itself. Draws us to itself. And it can lure us, because of that power, it can lure us out of our apathy. It can lure us out of our places of comfort. Um, I was thinking about this week and and the way that that even has done Beauty has done that for me in my own personal life. If you uh, know me or you've heard me speak, you, you've probably heard me talk about I'm, I'm kind of afraid of heights. I'm not a big fan of heights. Um, but I am often end up in these national parks where that's a, a place. And I, I'm drawn to spaces to go closer to the edge that if all was over that edge or all that was at the top of that kind of steep climb that I'm a little unsure about was just a pile of trash, there's no way. But because of the beauty of those places... I'm drawn just a little bit, to stretch a little bit outside of my comfort zone. This is a picture I have here of, um, this is Sky Pond in Rocky Mountain National Park. And to get to that spot, you have to, at the very end, there's a, you have to kind of scramble up a pretty steep grade, and there's kind of a little waterfall coming down, so everything's kind of wet. And I'm just telling you, like, I didn't love the part of climbing up that. It made me really nervous. But the beauty that I knew was waiting at the top, as the sun was rising, was worth it. It wooed me out of my comfort zone. It, it, it drew me to do something that I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wouldn't have ordinarily done. Beauty has that power in our lives to draw us in, to draw us out of ourselves into something different, something bigger. That's the power of beauty. And when you behold Jesus' beauty, it actually makes you a more courageous, patient, loving, self-sacrificing, strong, kind gentle person. The longer you look at Jesus, the more you behold his beauty, you actually become a different kind of person. And so our next step this morning is is really, really simple. The next step is this. Make time to behold Jesus's beauty. And, And I'm increasingly convinced that the greatest obstacle to our growth in becoming like Jesus is not a hostile culture, but a hurried life. Not a hostile culture, but a hurried life that we simply don't have or don't make the time to behold Jesus' beauty, to find ways to do that. Or even if we do have the time, our minds and our hearts are moving at such a pace that we can't still. We can't settle down to receive it. 
I'd say why during the Lenten season um, in the formed life, which is kind of our, our discipleship tool that we put together as a church, and you may have seen these in the back and um, you may have thought, man, I, I didn't pick one up and I don't know how far we're into Lent, but it seems like I'm too far behind. I'm not going to jump in now. I just need to tell you that the whole focus of this booklet and, and the form.life website in this season is helping us to cultivate spaces for solitude. Even just a few little pockets of that each day or five or ten minutes. And so if you're like, ah, I, I, am I too far behind? You're not. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't work like that. You can just pick this up. There's even a little cable of contents right here in the beginning that shows you which week it is. And so I think you just turn to page 28, starts Mondays, and you can just jump in tomorrow if you want. And it will actually guide you through some spaces of, okay, now if I carve out even just a few minutes of silence and solitude to behold Jesus' beauty. What do I do then? <laughs> this is at least one way to think about encountering him in that. Um, it's not too late to jump into that. Uh, Kurt Thompson uh, expounds quite a bit on the healing nature of beauty. He's a psychologist. He does a lot with neurobiology, um, but he's also a follower of Jesus. Uh, it's been deeply helpful to us at Christ Community. He came here a few years ago and actually spoke on this topic of um, beauty. He's got a book called The Soul of Desire, which is all about neurobiology and the power of beauty to heal and our need for that. And in a, a blog post, he offers a few suggestions for how we can bring this kind of beauty into our lives. He says, practice putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty. In other words, make time to engage art that has stood the test of time, be that music, painting, sculpture, or poetry, to name a few forms available to us. He says, another way of putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty is to take time, again, that's that key word, time, even if only a few minutes, to be in touch with creation. Take at least five or ten minutes to look around at anything that is living. A tree, he says, is an easy choice, and approach it. Look at it. Be curious. Touch it. Notice its beauty, and be aware that you did not create this. This object was made with you in mind for your enjoyment, to nourish your soul, and for you to steward. And my wife, Rachel, actually does a great job of this in ways that I'm continuing to learn from. But one of the things she does, she keeps a big kind of like coffee table-sized book of Impressionist paintings um, in, our, in our living room. And, and oftentimes, uh, she'll just, during her kind of time reading the Bible and praying, that kind of, she'll just pull that out and look at beautiful artwork or read poetry uh, and one of our pastors on staff has a practice of just reading through the Gospels um, in the evening before bed, just you know, kind of constantly cycling through, beholding Jesus' beauty in the Gospels. You can also discover beauty in thinking deeply about God in theology and in studying the Bible. And I don't just mean like reading a, a passage, but maybe picking a, a little tougher theology book or today I'm really going to do some Bible study methods on a passage. And what you may find is that in doing that, you behold God's beauty in a way that you would not expect. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a preface to a book called On the Incarnation. On the Incarnation was written by a guy named Athanasius back in the fourth century. It's one of the most important books in the history of Christianity where he's really defending the reality that Jesus is both truly and fully God and truly and fully human. It's a really powerful book. There was a season when I'd read it each Christmas time. It's not long. And Lewis writes this little introduction encouraging people, why would you pick up a book like On the Incarnation, kind of a tougher bit of theology and read through it? And this is what he says. I love this. He says, I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that their heart sings unbidden 
while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. I love that. Again, all of us are, are wired differently. We have different bents. You may say the idea of sitting down with a pipe in my mouth and the pencil in my hand and working thea- through theology is not going to connect. Maybe, maybe it's just the beauty of a space like this. I mean, I didn't plan this, but the sun streaming in this room right now, that's one of the things I love about this space is that when we walk into this room, we get to encounter the visual beauty of this spot. I'm, I'm grateful for the people who designed and built this space that now, almost 100 years later, that we get to enjoy this room. And to be, it's the first thing people say whenever they walk in. I get to tour this building a lot. It's like, wow, this is a beautiful room. So whether it's the beauty of a space like this, whether it's the beauty of nature or a poem or writing or a novel or a tough bit of theology with a pencil in your hand, find ways. Make the time. Give your attention to Jesus' beauty. It's worth it. Let that beauty sort of draw you out of the cramped sort of six-inch world that we so often live in and our world is no bigger than this. Let beauty draw you to put this away, even for just a few minutes each day, to look around at the world that God has created, the people that he's made, to behold his beauty. Because only in Jesus' death, in your place on the cross, that can save you from the death, the ugliness that's in the world. Uh, One theologian, Cornelius Plantinga, he talks about sin as the vandalism of shalom. I love that language for this metaphor of beauty because it talks about sin isn't just a breaking of a law, but it's actually, it brings in ugliness. It, it destroys, it vandalizes God's good world. On the cross, Jesus is able to transform and redeem that vandalism and to bring healing from it. Yes, on a macro sense, but in your life as an individual. And I don't think anyone's for at least for me, has captured Betty in a beautiful way how that works than J.R. Tolkien in The Silmarillion. And The Silmarillion is sort of a, uh, it's like kind of the creation account, uh, at least part of it, of, of Middle-earth. So if you've read the Lord of the Rings story and you want to like, how did this world that, uh, come to be? Um, the Silmarillion, the early chapters of that book, talk about that. And here's how Tolkien describes it. So the creator of this world is known as Iluvatar, and Iluvatar sings the world into existence, and it's beautiful, it's, it's glorious. And then one of his angel-like creatures named Melkor decides to create his own rival song. He isn't content with the part that he's been given to sing in Melkor's song. He wants to create his own song to increase, Tolkien says, his own power and glory. And for a moment, these two songs are, there's utter discord between them, and it's unbearable. It's a cacophony, and you feel like all the beauty is being distorted, but Iluvatar begins to sing a new song, one deeper and deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. And every time that Melkor tries to drown this new song by the violence of his voice, Iluvatar takes Melkor's loudest, most terrible notes and weaves them into the solemn beauty of the new song. And finally, Iluvatar addresses Melkor, declaring that he is in vain attempting to make his own discordant song and, in fact, only serves to make the true song more beautiful. Listen to this. This is... 
him speaking to Melchor, saying this is not going to work. And thou, Melchor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that hath attempted this shall prove but mine instrument in devising things more wonderful for which he himself had not imagined. And friends, that's precisely the glorious beauty of Jesus on the cross. The evil one thought he had won in that moment. Satan, the Melchor of our world, thought he had won, believed that his vandalism of God's good creation was now at last complete, that the very Son of God had been destroyed by evil. But friends, oh no, not even for a moment, because God's great beauty and glory were revealed in the self-sacrificing love on the cross. The moment that he thought was the victory was actually the utter moment of his defeat. Because sin and evil takes this, a beautiful creation of a tree, and turns it into this, the death and ugliness of a cross. But in Jesus' power, he is able to take that cross and turn it into an empty tomb. That is the picture of the wondrous mystery of the cross. I love this verse from the hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. So this, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. Instead of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Listen to this, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. Now in a moment, I just want to close this with kind of an extended time of prayer over us. And then we're just going to have some time just to respond in song. Even before we come to communion, we're just going to respond in song to the great beauty of our King. So let me pray over us now, and then we'll respond to our King in song. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to display your glory, your beauty all around us. In mountains and valleys, earth and sky, in every corner of the universe, nature shouts forth the praise of the one who made it. But even before you created anything, beauty was already on display because you are beauty itself and you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to dwell among us so that our imaginations could grasp what beauty with flesh looks like. Thank you, God, for the gift of your son. Cross-shaped beauty. Beautiful wounds that heal the world. Beautiful thorns fit for a king like no other. Beautiful beaten body not much to look at, but teeming with life. Beauty that flows red and reaches our hearts. Yes, beauty displayed in broken, sinful humans. Thank you, God, for choosing us to be the recipients of your glory. Make us one so we may display the beauty of your triune self. May we show the world what true unity looks like as we worship together in our unique and diverse bodies. People from different nations, ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds gathered to proclaim the name of Jesus. Lord, we recognize that announcing your cruciform beauty invites the opposition of the world. So we ask, as you ask for us, to deliver us from evil, we pray. Protect us from refusing your beauty for the sake of our own comfort and self-preservation. Give us the courage to display your cross-shaped beauty in a world where wealth, power, and recognition are seemingly more attractive than your bruised 
and broken body. Protect us from the evil one, Lord, and fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, let the beauty of your Son arrest our senses so that his beauty grows in us as we behold him. Yes, Lord, sanctify us, make us beautiful so that the world may see true beauty. In Jesus' name we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit.